0: Hey, everybody, how you doing? Well, that's good. (laughs) It's Charlie O'Connor here, playing the role of Bill Matz as host, as we try to figure out some way to fill our time during our lack of hockey. And you may have noticed that we've been creating a few new shows. Uh, Well, I guess one was just recreating yelling about sports. Kelly is doing her uh, interview random people and try to make it fun, and I think she's been doing a real good job with that so far. So to that end, I wanted to make a show of my own. And this show will have absolutely nothing to do with hockey, I promise you. Maybe we'll eventually bring some hockey things in, but for now, it is the Music Movie Discovery Show. And to kind of give you some background, I got Bill Matz on the the, the line with me today, but to give you some background on how the show is going to work, it's going to go like this. So each show, we're going to do one movie and one album, and one person is going to pick a movie that the other person has not seen, and one per- the other person is going to pick an album that the other person has not listened to. And then we're just going to kind of go back and forth on our thoughts on each of the other person's pick. So, Bill, thank you so much for being the first person to join this brand new show. Charlie, it's so hard not to just start talking. I don't know how you guys do it while I'm rambling on incoherently for the first five minutes of every show. I mean that's exactly what I felt like I was doing. So I'm just kinda of trying to live up to your standard here. And maybe maybe one of these days I'll come up with my own little intro thing, but I felt like for this time I'll just, just copy off the master here.
1: I like uh I like the new music and movie discovery show. I was just gonna
0: call it other shit with Charlie. That's not a bad idea. Maybe we should call it other shit. <laughs> I don't, I don't hate that. I mean, I'm not the best movie person or a name person, so hey, other shit ain't bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I uh, I like this idea. We talked about it, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we were like, hey, this uh, this might not be a hoax. We might have to start coming up with non hockey stuff. And you came up with the idea initially for the music and movie show. And uh, Kelly and I are both into it. I'm happy to be on the first one. And man, it's uh, turn it over the reins. I just get to sit here and let you lead. This is great.
0: I know. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how to do a damn hosting job. So (laughs) we'll see here. But yeah, so the the kind of the general plan is that every week I'm going to be the host. And then we'll alternate with Kelly and Bill. And maybe Steph will come on. Maybe we'll have other people come on occasionally. But the main thing is going to be me, Kelly, and Bill. And this week we're starting it out with Bill.
1: I really want you to get Steph to watch some movies like this,
0: though. That would just be. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, we got to have Steph do some uh, some some bad cinema. I mean, we are what what me and Bill found when we were doing brainstorming for this was that we are both connoisseurs of bad cinema, uh, which is why I chose a movie that I was honestly surprised that Bill had never seen before. But uh, I'm glad that we get to do this. It is it's a movie, little old movie called Highlander, uh, released in 1986, and it is a cult classic of bad cinema. So. I suspect a lot of our listeners are familiar with the movie, but uh, to give you a a brief plot description in case you are not familiar with Highlander, this this plot is just as crazy as it will sound as I describe it. So concept of the movie, there are immortal beings running around the world that just look like normal people, but they can't die unless you chop their head off. And they're all competing for what is called the prize, which goes to the last immortal standing. And the final gathering of all these immortals happens in 1980s New York City, when the main character, Connor McLeod has to fight and try to defeat the evil Kurgan to prevent him from getting the prize. Oh, and, and Sean Connery's in this, too. He's in a bunch of flashbacks. He as just Conner's- shows up. <laughs> oh, yeah, he shows up in like the most ridiculous outfit. He's Connor's Egyptian mentor from the 1500s. And that, my friends, is The Highlander.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, uh, man, I had a great time. I just had a really good time watching this. It's one of those movies that when I tell people I've never seen it, they're like, but, but how? Like, just, (laughs) when I just put out on Twitter, I can't believe I've never seen this movie. Like, halfway through watching it, people were just, everyone's, everyone's response was, what the fuck? Why? How have you never seen this? Like, at a certain point, you feel like you've seen something because you've heard there can only be one reference so many times. There can be only like, one. <laughs> yeah, like I know what – I knew the general I, – I, I, it turns out I didn't know the general concept. But, uh, yeah, 1980s New York seems like the perfect setting for this showdown <laughs> of uh, maniac swordsmen. So it was,
0: it, it was a really just good time watching it
1: was my very first takeaway from it.
0: Yeah, I mean, my so I have like a a thing with this movie because so my dad loves this movie like okay. this is one of, this is one of his favorite like awful movies of all time to the point where like him and his friends in the '80s would like go around like at parties and like have like trench coats like Connor McCloud and have these like novelty fake swords that they would go around. My friends called my dad O'Connor McCloud. So, like, this is, like, a big-time <laughs> O'Connor family movie. Oh, that man, I what a great—that would have made a great Twitter handle. O'Connor McLeod, definitely, definitely. So, like, this is a movie that I grew up with. I watched it a bunch of times when I was a kid because my dad just had to watch it, like, once a year. Um, and my, my case for this movie, basically, is that it's just one of those classic, like, it's so bad, it's good. Like no one's going to act like this is some like cinematic masterpiece in terms of what it does. But like there's just so much dumb shit and so much shit that doesn't make sense that you just you turn your brain off and you just have fun with it. And like those movies, like not saying that like great movies aren't great, but these movies are just like, I don't know. I, I, I love these kind of movies that are just so like utterly ridiculous that you just got to roll with it
1: yeah i can't imagine like having a fun podcast about like an actually good movie uh, like this is this is perfect subject matter, and what it, like when we were talking, okay, so uh, I told you straight up, I prefer bad movies to good like i don 't want to watch an academy award nominated movie ninety percent of the time i'd rather just do this, uh, and I, I just um shit, I completely forgot where I was going. <laughs> um, yeah, just the, the utter ridiculousness of it. Uh, start talking as I remember my
0: point again. Yeah. So, uh, so one thing I wanted to kind of bring up, because as I said, it seems like we're both connoisseurs of bad films. So what, like, let's, let's talk for a second about like the concept of what makes a movie like so bad. Cause there, there are some movies that are just bad. Like yeah. they're like, they're just utterly unwatchable because they're just they they try to be something they're not and they're just terrible but then there's like a subclass of bad movies that like you know objectively if you're like talking about I guess like how to critique cinema like they don't do things well but it somehow swings back around to being awesome that's 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 what I was gonna get at thank you for planting that
1: seed in my head Charlie we were talking about doing like a bad movie and you told me this one is self-aware like, at no point do I think Sean Connery and the director were like, okay, and then this, and then, okay, this is the scene we're going to submit for a Golden Globe. Like, when they were doing this thing, they fucking knew what they were making. And just, I feel like there's a complete lack of movies like this now. Everything tries to be a two and a half hour epic film. And I, I just really enjoy, yeah, I think the, the first thing you have to have is everyone's self-aware. Like, these are immortals from thousands of years ago that have to behead each other, and they're in (laughs) 1980s New York having sword fights. Like, at some point, some Vietnam veteran with a fucking machine gun shows up, and they're sword fighting, and it's, like, the absurdity of it. And they they had to know how bad it was, like, how stupid it was. Uh, Just unbelievably,
0: yeah, just... Like, they're in Madison Square Garden and setting the whole, like, blowing up cars. It's unbelievable. Serious underrated part about this movie, and maybe there's nothing underrated about this movie, because, like, I think everyone who loves it loves this part. Queen does the entire soundtrack, and, like, at random points, just some ridiculous Queen song will blast in. And it just, like, that to me is, like, if you had any doubt that they they realized that this movie was just like intended to be just dumb, like just throwing in a queen soundtrack. Cause like I'm not saying queen isn't a great band. They are, but like they were like the, in the epitome of like self-aware ridiculousness and to have them soundtrack the movie was just perfect. And that's
1: like all queen
0: songs are like mini epics. And just having that, like, Freddie Mercury
1: just blowing out his lungs over, like, something stupid, like a thunderstorm destroying an entire stone home while a sword fight is going on in it, like, is just incredible. Like, I watched the movie with Ava, and she was like, oh, wow, this is Queen. I was like, no, this is some 80s band that's – and then, like – over the opening credits it's like original score by queen i was like get the fuck out of here <laughs> and then it's like one of the biggest bands ever just adding to the to the absurdity of the of the proceedings
0: yeah, and that like that kills me. And there's there's a couple moments where like the Queen soundtrack comes in, I think we'll get into later, where it's just so it's so perfect in its ridiculousness. But the first question I have to ask, because I believe there is only one correct answer to this to this question. Are you saying there can be only one? Best character in the movie. Kurgan, baby! Of on. course it's the Kurgan. Kurgan is legendary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like it's I mean, Sean Connery just he shows up. And he's in that ridiculous, I don't even, like,
0: Zoro costume? Is that what you would call it? Like so, I, so, like so apparently, like, they want... So he says he originally introduces himself as a Spaniard. But then, like, he's like, oh, by the way, no, I'm actually from Egypt. But I married a Japanese princess. So I don't know, like, what the yeah. fuck they were trying to do with that character. Well, he's had a lot of time. Like, that's the... I guess you would...
1: It, like, that's. I saw a tweet the other day that was like, man, I guess I can't lie to myself anymore if I had, the, like, about all the things I'd do if I had, if I just had the time. Like, yeah, I'm just watching the Highlander. But, you know, if you had the
0: kind of time an immortal has, you'd go to Japan, you'd go to Egypt. So, like, I get it. I get it. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. If you have thousands of years, yeah, you're going to, you're going to try everywhere. Um, but, I mean, the, the Kurgan is just. Like, I think the one thing that for, for whatever reason, every time I saw this movie, because I watched it again last night just to make sure it was all fresh in my mind, I had never noticed this. But like, so he gets he gets his throat slit yeah. by Sean Connery in the fight. In the fight where, spoiler, alert, Sean Connery dies. But he gets his throat slit, but he doesn't get his head completely chopped off, so he survives. And this guy, so like, presumably you're an immortal, okay? your your throat being slit is going to heal I would think because you're not dead and every every other wound they have heals so at, he when he shows up in 1980s New York he literally has his throat linked back together with pins he's got pins lined up with yeah, and I think it. it's thought that freaking was honestly, iconic
1: he's got they're like safety pins and I yes! thought- I thought it really went with his aesthetic, though. Like, I'm telling you, if it was 1986 in New York City, that is exactly how I'd be dressing. I really, I dug the Kurgan. He was a punk rock son of a bitch, man. I just thought that was a great look. Like, he should have been, he should have just been, like, going to underground, like, Johnny Rotten shows.
0: Oh, yeah. And, like, as far as, because one of the things that I do, like, I almost would equate, like Chris Christopher Lambert plays Connor McCloud. Christopher Lambert also was the guy who played um Raiden in Mortal Kombat. So like he's Oh yeah. shit. So he's been in like other shit. But like he's really really bad in this. <laughs> but it's uh, but it's almost like he's bad. He kind of reminds me of like how bad Keanu Reeves is in The Matrix. Where like I don't think I don't think the movie would have worked if this if if the actor would have actually done a good job now acting. if, if Daniel Day Lewis played this part, no one would have ever remembered this movie. Yeah, yeah. So like, but it, but at the same time, like when he's doing a scene with the Kurgan, the Kurgan just blows him off the stage. Like Connor McLeod is very is is honestly a pretty boring character, and the Kurgan is just like every single thing he says is fucking hilarious. Uh,
1: I didn't like I didn't look this up, but just looking at his head. Uh, After he shaves his head because there's like sketches out there because people are going around beheading everybody and the newspapers blow up. Uh, But just looking at his shaved head... He had to have played Jason Voorhees at some point. He's like seven foot tall. He's ugly as shit.
0: He's got a misshapen head. He had to have played Jason Voorhees at some point. It definitely fits. You know know who he did play, though? And this was another thing. There were a couple things that popped up in my head watching it last night that I never realized the ten other times I've seen this movie. So he actually plays, like, the evil guard in Shawshank Redemption
1: oh, fuck, you are absolutely right.
0: The dude who, like, he, like uh, almost pushes Andy Dufresne off the yeah. roof. Yeah, he. that's the same actor. And that was the only other thing I could think of when I saw him. Like, holy shit, like, Byron Hadley is the fucking Kirk. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that is him. I am so bad at this
1: game. Like, in the beginning flashbacks, uh, like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, wait, is that the same guy? And Ava's just sitting there like, I hope you never have to, like, look at a police lineup and and i'm like yeah, i hope i'm never the victim of a violent crime either jesus christ and she's like yeah that's not what i mean i'm just so bad at faces and remember i couldn't it took me a while to really nail down what was going on but then i realized it does not matter it, it really will, doesn't it will outright explain
0: itself this is the type of movie that will absolutely tell and not show at some point yeah, well, at some point you do. You have to make it clear, like, what the fuck is going on, because it is a totally batshit insane plot. Like, it's one of those plots where, like, they don't. There's there's no subtext because there's the writing isn't good enough for there to be subtext, so they just have to flat out say it.
1: Oh yeah, that's one hundred percent. And I'll tell you though, watching this thing, I could have gone for a lot more mythology of
0: uh, of these immortals. Like, why? How come? I would love to know so much more about them now. And I think that might be and like to to be clear, I have not watched anything beyond the the original movie. But I think that's one of the reasons why they have like four other movies and a TV show that spawned from this because Ooh, like a TV show, huh? Yeah, I think it was in like the 90s, hmm. so it's probably very 90s, but I I've never watched it. In in any case, I think Like, that's one of the reasons why it had so much longevity is because, like, the people who got into it because it was just this amazing bad movie were like, I want to know more about this shit. And then they just started pumping out more and more movies and TV shows and whatever. Um, but I, I, one of these days, maybe, maybe if this lasts until like this, you know, quarantine lasts till the end of twenty twenty, I'll start watching the other Highlander movies. <laughs> but uh, I, if I get really, really desperate, but I, I want to change gears now because I wa- I, wa- I wanted to make sure we were all on board with the Kurgan being yeah. the best because yeah. he's he's incredible. So, favorite scenes of the movie, I, I put it in the outline as favorite what the fuck scenes. So to me, the scene in the church is like one of the great bad movie scenes ever and the kurgan owns it but like the lot when he when he goes in the i have something to say i it's better to burn out than to fade away and he's like kicking nuns and and like spitting it's like it's like one of the most bizarre movie scenes i have ever seen in my life and i love it i love every minute of it
1: yeah that's absolutely way up there um just the the sword fight the fight between kurgan and sean connery in which they destroy, having a sword fight, they destroy a giant home made of stones with the power of their sword swings. <laughs> it is, they are so intense that they crumble this entire stone structure. But I have to, like, having no idea what was going to happen in this movie and it opens with, like, the fabulous Freebirds, like, coming out, like, that's a real, that's a famous tag team that got introduced, those three, those three guys, Michael P.S. Hayes is the most famous, uh, with the mullet and the beard and everything, but, um, just those guys coming out and then (laughs) having to explain, like, ah, yeah, um, Yeah, they are wearing, you know, they're bad guys, and it's the 80s, so, you know, culture's not as woke, so the Confederate flag capes they're wearing, it's not so much meant to be racist uh, as it is, well, all right, yeah, maybe Michael Hayes did get in trouble for saying racist stuff a couple times, but, (laughs) uh, shit, um, yeah, it's the 80s, what can I say? Like, it's just having this wrestling match, and then it goes right
0: into a fucking sword fight <laughs> they're they're literally sword fighting in the parking garage and, and it's funny because like i had totally forgotten that there was a wrestling scene to open the movie and when i saw that I, first thing i thought was holy shit bill must love this but like it literally it starts out with with the wrestling match uh conor mcleod is is in the stands for like there was no reason for this movie to start out with a wrestling match no reason at all None. It, it was just like well if we start out with a wrestling match that'll be cool right and then he, he leaves because i guess like he's feeling the presence of another immortal and then he goes to the parking garage and there's another immortal who's wearing sunglasses in a parking garage and a suit <laughs> and a suit and like he's wearing this long ass trench coat it, it it was if you're talking about like perfect openings to a movie that show you just exactly how much craziness you're in for. Like that's gotta be top 10.
1: Yeah. Like, and just trying to figure out what the hell I was watching the first <laughs> 10 minutes of this. I'm like, all right, I'm in like, yeah. Okay. I see where this is going and I like it.
0: So I also, I also love just because going back to the, the con, the conversation we had about queen being the soundtrack when they, for like the only time in the movie, they try to be melodramatic And they try to show that, like, you know, he he falls in love with this woman and she gets older and he doesn't age because he's immortal. And, like, you're supposed to, like, I think feel like real pity and sympathy for him. But over the top of it, you have Freddie Mercury screaming at the top of his lungs who wants to live forever? And it's like, it just undercuts any sort of seriousness of the scene. And it makes it just hilarious. And, like, you're supposed to feel bad for him, but instead you're just laughing your ass off. And just the utter ridiculousness of you soundtracking this, like, supposedly sad scene to Freddie Mercury screaming.
1: The uh, the training montage, especially oh my the, God. Beach,
0: the yes. beach running
1: scenes with uh, Sean Connery sometimes running with his pants like pulled up like capri pants sometimes uh riding alongside McLeod on a horse it's just <laughs> it's beautiful like I, I that's cinematography to me right there like that's that's what it is
0: no, I I had forgot. There were a bunch of scenes I had forgotten about. That was one of them, and that had like serious Rocky Three vibes. It with, was uh, Rocky Three. It definitely was Rocky Three. Like they, though, the director and producers absolutely watched Rocky Three, and were like, we need that in our movie. It's it's gonna be in fifteen hundred, but we need that in our movie.
1: That's I like uh, I like that you you just this random scene that came out of nowhere, uh, just showing Connor in history. Just one random point. Where he saves the, the little
0: girl and shoots the Nazi. Like, <laughs> that's another thing. Like, I, I was another scene that I had totally forgotten about. But the reason why I love it is I can just imagine – I can imagine they're all, like, you know, in the, you know, in the room where they're throwing out ideas for the screenplay. And somebody just, like, yo, you know what would be cool? If we throw Connor McCloud in World War II and he shoots a Nazi and everybody's like, yeah, why not? Like, why not put that in the movie? Like, there's no real reason for it to be in there, but there's never anything bad about watching someone shoot a Nazi. Yeah, no, that's it's if you wanted to make
1: sure everyone's rooting for him. It's like he saved that little girl from a Nazi. Like, how do you that's good. That's that's 100 percent approval rating.
0: I mean, it, it happens, like, two-thirds of the way through the movie. So yeah. if you weren't on board with them, like, I don't think that's changing any minds. <laughs> but I, I just – I really think that was just an example of it's like, well, you know what? We've done everything else. Why not have him shoot a Nazi? And, like, it's just – it's so overdone, but it's so great. And, again, like, there's nothing bad about shooting Nazis, so why not?
1: <laughs> that might be a controversial statement now, Charlie.
0: Well, maybe. maybe. Hopefully not for our listeners. No, um, yeah.
1: That's uh, – I, I really I, – I'm trying to – Man, just, I keep going back uh, to the, the dude, the survivalist from Vietnam. Oh, Shit. man. Just so happens to be driving around in, like, some fucking hilarious muscle car and has a machine gun on the passengers <laughs> and happens to come across two dudes sword fighting and is like, oh, you know what? I need to interject. I really need to be involved here, but I just love the, uh, I love the idea of something that just doesn't happen anymore. Like the newspaper business, uh, just like taunting the police and being on the side of criminals. Like, Oh, the, the, the random beheaders are up three, nothing on the cops. Yes. And, like, everyone's buying a newspaper that. and following this story. Like we don't have news stories like that anymore where like the bad guys are messing with the cops and everyone's following along. We never get Son of Sam or BTK or anything anymore.
0: Just some random virus that makes us stay inside. You know, that's actually kind of funny because there's a lot of things about this movie that, like, I love because they're so bad. That's actually... I I didn't think of that. That's actually one of the things that, like, I will give this movie actual cinematic credit for. Like, that little thing with the newspaper stuff, like, that's actually legitimately good world building. Like, that is good... Because that puts you in, like, the, like... If this if this bizarre thing was actually happening, what would the media do? They'd make fun of it. Of course they would, especially in the fucking 80s. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, in 1980s like they didn't give a oh, free people have been beheaded. This is hilarious. <laughs> but one um the love interest, I can't remember the the, the woman in the who's the forensics uh oh, investigator oh, oh, pres-
0: present day, yeah, Brenda.
1: She ju- yeah, Brenda, she just happened to be uh, like, the world's foremost authority on sword making. <laughs> like, that's just an incredible coincidence to me that, uh, oh yeah, she she works, uh, she investigates forensics for the M- NYPD, but she wrote this book uh, that's about the complete history of sword making and metallurgy. <laughs> like, oh yeah, of course, why wouldn't she know that this sword was, the metal was folded over
0: 200 times? It makes perfect sense to yeah. me. Yeah. And I I think that's a good transition into uh, one of the the final things I want to talk about. Because there's just, there's so many parts. We've kind of been talking about how, like, this is one of those so bad, it's good movies. But there's so many things about this movie that are just, like, incredibly poorly thought out. And I just kind of want to run through some of them rapid fire. Like, my favorite casting thing is that you have Christopher Lambert, who is a French-American, I think. He's playing a Scot. Yeah. The high, he's a high, nice. the, the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> and then you have Sean Connery, who is from Scotland, playing an Egyptian via Spain. <laughs> like, you had two people playing, like, the wrong characters in this movie. I would, like, do you think
1: Sean Connery, like, signed on to do it and then read the script and was like, I'll be in this for eight minutes? <laughs> you cannot, this movie is not going to make enough
0: for you to afford me. <laughs> I feel like there's no way he actually understood the plot. That he's just like, well, you're giving me the money, so, like, I'm Sean Connery, sure. I'll dress up in in ridiculous outfits for a couple days. (laughs) Like, there's a 0% chance he read the script ahead of time. (laughs) No chance. No chance at all. Um, Then there's the fact that, like, the entire point of the movie is that they're all trying to get the prize, which is given to whoever is the last one, whoever is the only one, because there can be only one. And, like... We never really understand what it is. They just tack it on at the end. And I guarantee you, I don't know this for a fact, but it felt to me that, like, they originally just wanted to end the movie on the fight. And then somebody from the studio pulled them back and you're like, yo, you guys have to, like, actually explain what he won. And then they pulled everybody back in to film one more scene where he explains the prize. It just feels so tacked on that, like, that wasn't even the point. I was going to ask. I was like, did I miss something with the prize?
1: <laughs> like, did he... Uh, he says, like, I can grow old and have kids now. Like, I don't know. Does How is that, that a prize? Was, Didn't you want
0: to live forever? Is
1: the prize Queen being the last immortal that you'll eventually die now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's, they, they say something like... Okay, well now I know the thoughts of everyone and I guess they leave it open ended that like he could like bring about world peace or something, but like that doesn't mean he's going to. No, I he might I didn't he, he get might, yeah.
1: I didn't might get the impression inter- that he was gonna use his powers for anything but uh
0: bang and Brenda. Exactly. And speaking of banging Brenda, this this particular part of the movie, I I it cracked me up so much watching it. So like he's hooking up with Brenda. And then they immediately smash cut from him on the bed with her to a shot of tigers in a cage in broad daylight. Yeah. Like, in in terms of filmmaking, that's got to be one of the best smash cuts I have ever seen in my life.
1: The sex scene itself with just the music and, like, the perfect 80s apartment with the skyline and the light. Like, it looked like something out of every 80s movie I've ever seen. And then, yeah, right to the... Right to the, uh, we're looking at tigers in the zoo, I guess, or somewhere.
0: (laughs) And tell me fucking Joe Exotics about exactly, Exactly. Somehow it was even more funny because I had just watched Tiger King. And that, like, but yeah, that was, that was mind-blowing to me because, like, there's no way that should get through, like, a producer or director. There's no, there, there's gotta be some sort of transition here, but nope, not in the Highlander. And then there's the haggis scene, which in a movie with awful dialogue has some of the worst dialogue ever where he's explaining to, uh, to Sean Connery about haggis that it's like sheep stomach. And, uh, and he's like apoplectic that Sean Connery doesn't know what haggis is. And then Sean Connery ends the back and forth on the boat with how revolting. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's just some of these scenes you watch and you're like, how did that get put in a movie?
1: Like, is it possible they were just bullshitting and they filmed it? Like, neither Maybe. of them are in character.
0: <laughs> like, Very you're, a, you're
1: from Scotland. What do you mean you don't know what Haggis is? And he's like, <laughs> I don't fucking eat
0: that shit. What are you talking about? <laughs> Unreal. So, so as I mentioned, this movie, it, it, it does become a cult classic. Apparently, like, it got savaged by critics when it came out. Didn't sell many tickets at the theater, but then like people started picking up on it as this great bad movie. Like this deserves to be viewed as a great bad movie.
1: Yeah, no, this is this is a um, this is in the hall of fame of these t- of this genre uh, of just yeah. No one no one can explain how or why it got made, how or why it got financed, how or why anyone signed on to do it. But it's if you got two hours to kill. Why the hell not?
0: <laughs> okay. So I think that's a good good spot to end our uh, our discussion of Highlander. So now we're going to pivot, and this is what's going to happen in these shows. So we get the first half of the show on the movie. Second half of the show is on an album. So since I picked the movie, Bill picked the album for this week. And this week's album was uh, Streetlight Manifesto, uh, Somewhere in the Between, uh, released in 2007. And since I was the newcomer to this one, I will give Bill the floor so he can kind of drive the conversation here and also just kind of give some backstory, I guess, on the band and on the album because this is, I think this is a, I don't know how into this band you are, but I know you're into this whole genre. So I kind of want to hear about what you know about all this.
1: Yeah, I came up, uh, I I just, I chose this album, honestly, because someone suggested it on a Someone suggested it on Twitter, and I thought it would be funny to make Charlie listen to Ska because he's like a serious music scholar. Um, I, I, I like mean, I, would, I wouldn't quite lot. go that
0: far, but no, I, I mean, I will admit that I'm not, like, yeah. Ska is definitely one of those genres that I don't listen to, and yeah. I've never been super into. So it was like, hey, sure, I'll check it out. Why not?
1: Yeah, all right. So Streetlight Manifesto, uh, they're, they're basically one guy. They're one guy named uh, Thomas like Kalanicki. I never know how to say his last name. He goes by Tokei. And he was in a little band called Catch-22. They were a pretty decently well-known ska band for a little while. He had a falling out with them and uh, formed Streetlight. And really what it is, this is their second real studio album. Uh, It's their third, like, if you look at their Wikipedia page, it goes, this is their third album. They put out a re-release of a Catch-22 album. Just because he was like, those are my songs. They want to re-release it for an anniversary or something. I'm going to preempt them and uh, put it out myself with my new ska band. And it's basically just a continuation of his original Catch-22 with Streetlight. But this one, man, I, I-, I liked it a lot when it came out. I was a big fan. Uh, there, It's New Jersey ska. You know, even if you're not, if you're from where I'm from, like you've seen them somewhere at some point, like all my friends... Uh, have been to streetlight shows you've seen them at warp tour something they're they're from around here, but they got decently big uh and really, what this album reminded me is that this genre is it's i i, I don't know <laughs> there's this quote in almost famous from Lester bangs where he's like The idea that, like, you can't take rock and roll too seriously. If you really, really think about yourself like an artist, like, a little part of it is supposed to be stupid, and that's what ska is to me, man. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be dance music. This is really good. They're really great instrumentalists, but it got really, like, repetitive, and they were just trying to be a little too long, like, the opposite of what we just talked about with the movie uh looking listening back to this album for the first time in a while love the first half and then in the second half i'm like have i just been listening to the same song for like an hour like that's how i th- that's basically what i came to the conclusion of at the end of this thing but i really i love the first half of it like side a is really great uh just tell me what your initial thoughts were listening to it for the first time charlie
0: yeah, no, that's interesting, kind of, your breakdown of this. Because um, I, I honestly, I went into this figure, and this was an album that you absolutely loved. I didn't realize it was more like, yeah, I like it, but it's not like that's what I would consider first to be album, like a super uh, their classic. Their first
1: album is freaking awesome, and Keesby Knights the the cover album, is freaking awesome. And then they come out with Somewhere in the Between, and it was like, okay, this is cool. This
0: is kind of just more of the same, though. Gotcha. That's fair. Um, so I'm not at all familiar with Shrieklet Manifesto. Barely familiar with Scott. Like I know like the big hits, um, but it's just it's not it's not a genre that I got into. Maybe in part because of kind of exactly what you're saying, where there's that like inherent goofiness that I never kind of latched onto. I tend to be more into like I when I say heavier, I don't mean like heavier musically, but just like heavier lyrically stuff. You know the 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 more like I guess sad is the way to put it, but I guess intense is probably the best way. Like I tend to be more into that kind of stuff. And the inherent goofiness of Scott kind of turned me off. And I, I'll say I was, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this. At the same time, it was the parts of the album that were kind of the heavier parts that I liked the most. Like So to kick it off, I really, really, really liked the first song. We, we Will Fall Together, I thought was awesome. I like that. That's the song that like I, I legitimately will probably keep listening to beyond. Like, I doubt I'll I'll keep this album on rotation, but that's a song I'll go back to a lot because it's just like the the lyrics are cool. It, it's it has the the horns, but they're not like super sky-ish It's kind of darker, and they got the fucking dueling saxophone solo that goes into a bass solo, and it's like, damn, these guys are like really really good musicians. That was that song to me was like. I put that, like, head and shoulders above the rest of the album. I thought that song was, like, flat-out incredible.
1: I love, I think, that and um, and Mephisto's Cafe are probably my two favorite songs on the album. But, yeah, that's... Th- the reason I wanted... Uh, I did really think this would be good is because... W- that's, like, Scott, to me, is the goofy, fun, having a good time. That's what it is. But Streetlight is inherently, like... Unity and, uh, mor- and mortality are two continual themes throughout all of their songs, really. This being the first one you've heard and the first song on the album, I can see why you would latch on to it. And, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's, yeah. When you see them live, Charlie, it's hilarious. Like, when you talk about the musicianship, the the main guy, Toke, he writes every note of every song and every lyric of every song. And he just stands there with a microphone and fucking looks at them and watches them and makes sure they don't screw up his shit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you could see them ten times with ten different lineups. As long as he's there, it's Streetlight Manifesto. But and he's just like staring at them like, do not screw up my masterpiece. He is very much like the outlier of that uh ska community where they're more up there to tell the jokes in between the songs than fucking
0: actually play the music right half the time. No, that's that's interesting, because yeah, I definitely you definitely got the I definitely got the impression, and that was I guess cool to me is that like this was meant to be art not just ska whereas I feel like most ska is it just feels like party music essentially and that's kind of where I would lose interest so the parts of it the parts of it I like the most it was funny and I don't know I don't know if um this might just be because like I'm not I'm not super into like the skate punk scene okay i'm not like like and and truthfully it's not that i don't like it it's just i'm not that familiar with it but the one the one band that i did get into from the skate punk scene that i still love uh is afi and there were parts of this album not even like entire songs but there'd be like 30 second bursts of, of of the songs that would remind me a lot of like early pre-major label AFI like the first the intro to uh one foot on the gas that is like art of drowning AFI right there like this the the the, the, the note picking with the guitar and the slow build up like that's that's art of drowning Sing the AFI and the other song I probably liked the most after we will fall together was watch a crash. And I think that's probably because it's like the most like punk rock sounding song. And that had a lot of AFI vibes to me. And again, like I love AFI. So hearing that, I was like, man, I wasn't expecting to hear that vibe in a sky album, which was cool to me. The parts of the album I wasn't as into were the parts that were like, and and I kind of see where you're coming from here, where you're like the second half of the album, everything kind of started sounding the same. I felt like the second half of the album Sounded more like what I think of when I think of Scott, yeah. except the songs were really long, and it was like, okay, well, I'm already not super into this style, and now you're throwing five minute songs at me that are a style I don't particularly love anyway. So the, I, I was sort of with you. I kind of lost interest a bit in the second half. There were a couple songs that I latched onto, but the I, I, I loved we will fall was it we will fall down together yeah. we will fall together. Love that. Really liked watch a crash. Uh, Mephisto's Cafe. The chorus is awesome, um, and then the other stuff. Like I, don't, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I disliked any of it, but I definitely started falling off a little bit in the second half.
1: Yeah, and that's it. It just kind of seemed to all run together when I was listening. Like I don't listen to albums all the way through most of the time. I listen to a half, listen to a couple songs, just put something on shuffle, just tell Alexa play music so I can d- get something done. Uh, listening to it all at once for the first time in a while, it was like, all right. And that's when I get into the song-length discussion. Like, you talked about not loving skate punk and that whole scene. Like, I love the Suicide Machines. Like, the Mighty Mighty Bostones are, like, they're poppy. You, feel, you hear their music on the radio when we were kids. Like, it was ska, but not like, not like this. And, like, only either of those bands, though, only a handful of their songs eclipse three minutes. And this song, I, I don't think this album has a song under three minutes. Like, um... I just had the lengths in front of me. There's a, yeah, I think, I think, like, 322 is the shortest song on the album, and that is, like, that's just not ska, that's not typical punk, that's not something you'd be expecting. Uh, Even being familiar with the
0: band, I was like, Jesus Christ, how long is this song? Is this a five-minute song? So, my question to you, and as someone who, like, knows the scene and, and knows these bands, like how are they viewed in the Ska scene? Are they viewed as like, the artsy type yes. are they viewed are, so so are, are they respected in the scene or are they kind of like do people kind of roll their eyes when you hear Streetlight Manifesto
1: I think like today like if you're talking about 2020 when there are like there are no more ska bands like, Fair. I think people are just I, like at least me I see they put out it's been it's always something like it's a very if you look into the history of Thomas Kalanicki and Streetlight Manifesto and Catch-22 there's always some sort of drama he's dropping out of a band he's telling people People don't buy the cd from the label's website because we make less buy it from this website shit like it's always something and uh you know you kind of roll your eyes now but you know 99 to
0: 2010 these yeah this was like the artsy ska that's what this was okay. and and the other bands like they were they were still like you know, in that scene, it wasn't like they were apart from it. I feel like art, like artsy bands, can sometimes be assholes too.
1: Oh yeah, they seemed like. I mean, I saw like a perfect juxtaposition like between what they are and what Scott is. I watched Real Big Fish open up for Streetlight once. Real Big Fish opened and closed with Sellout. They played the same song twice. <laughs> they open, they play like two, three songs, and then they finally like just start talking to the crowd lead singer just goes 22 more songs till beer like because he knew everyone was there to fucking hear beer so like and that's like what yeah so i see at least they would tour and somewhat socialize with with bands like that who were more you know wearing checker print stuff and getting drunk after the show and that's why they were in a scott band to begin with
0: gotcha yeah because it's like one thing that's that's really interesting to me about the way that you're the way that you're describing the scuzzing because again this is a scene that I know nothing about but like the the music scenes that I that that I kind of frequent um the ones that like I feel like are kind of viewed the way ska is by the critical, you know, basically the critics that, that marginalized them for years. Like the critics that marginalized the punk scene, the critics that marginalized the emo scene, the critics that marginalized the pop punk scene. Like there's definitely a feeling in those scenes that like, this is bullshit that we don't get credit for, for like the really great music we do. And like, some of like the the in terms of like ambition like the most ambitious bands i will always say from like the 2000s emo scene were just as good from a like artsy you know technical standpoint as a lot of the popular indie rock bands it was just that they weren't getting on pitchfork because they were deemed like not they were deemed inferior so there was definitely in my mind with a lot of the scenes that i'm into there's a real like inferiority complex and it's like a you know why do we get ignored? This is bullshit. But the way you're describing ska to me, it's almost like ska. the most ska bands are just like, fuck it. We don't care. We're just out to have a good time. Yeah.
1: I mean, like I, my buddy, like Scott is dead is something all ska. Like every person in a ska band owns a Scott is dead. T-shirt. Really? Like, okay. <laughs> if there is like, yeah, certainly there is some sort of like, Hey man, you know, we might be the best instrumentalists. Like listen to this album tell me that you can name it out like a a band with 10 instrumentalists as as good as this. I bet you can't, but it's also like, I don't know. just not a popular, it's just not a type of music that ever caught on in any sort of mainstream way. And I think everyone just kind of accepted it and went, this is like,
0: it's a very proud to be underground scene. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think like, I think there's definitely an element to that, to some of the scenes that I follow, you know, that, you know, it's, outwardly, it's like, well, we're proud that, that you know, we don't get the the, the the credit that we deserve because we're insular and we have our own thing. But, like, there's definitely an element just under the surface of, like, why doesn't Pitchfork give us best new music, even though even when one of our bands releases this, like, epic concept album that is, like, it really, from an ambition standpoint, just as good as as the stuff that, that gets praised to high heaven. And I just get the feeling from what you're saying that Ska is, is much more like at ease with what they are which i guess is fascinating why they were doing this album because if this album i listen to and i hear a band that like maybe not openly but like at their core they kind of want that credit they oh. want to be viewed as an art as a, as a legitimate art rock band that just happens to have ska influences
1: yeah it's it's definitely it's very like they approach it more from an orchestral yes this is punk rock this is a subgenre of punk rock but this is this is musicianship we're not up here uh, I love in um, oh, what the fuck the the Walk Hard when he, when he uh Dewey Cox does cocaine and invents punk rock because he's just yelling as loud as he can, playing as fast as he can, like some sort of punk. Like <laughs> it's not that. Like they are they are trying to make that sort like level music thought of in that way. They just play a genre that you know is never going to be. Like think about so, like the biggest ska song I can reference is Sell Out by Real yeah. Big Fish. What's the theme of that song? Selling out. Like it's that's a <laughs> yeah. like that's how these people think or at least thought.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh that, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I only know maybe like what like three or four ska songs. Yeah. Like there's that one, there's that one by the the Mighty Bossitones that they play and like Never Had a Knock on sometimes. Wood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one. And it, is is Goldfinger Ska? Ah, uh, yeah, sure.
1: No,
0: no, no, no. Okay. so are they just they're just punk rock? I think so. I was never okay. big
1: on Goldfinger.
0: Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, cuz I, I mean I I know some of these ska bands also from like Tony Hawk because like they would always throw like four or five ska songs on a Tony Hawk soundtrack. Yeah,
1: yeah that was but, Oh man, Tony Hawk. That's where I like skate especially like the skate punk scene. That all came out of the video game. It all like it blew up after the game. Did it really? I I swear, no one I knew skateboarded until Pizza Hut sent around that demo of PlayStation games and the first level
0: of Tony Hawk was on it, and then everybody (laughs) skateboarded. Fair. I mean, I never skateboarded, and I, I, as I said, I never super got into the punk scene. Yeah. Like, I, I, my intro to uh, to modern rock was like Jimmy World, and then into the emo scene, and then into indie rock from there. So I missed most of that skate punk. The only reason why I got into AFI is because they kind of straddled the line. You know, Sing the Sorrow was sort of in that scene, and then I went back and listened to all their old stuff, and that those... Those albums actually were in the skate punk scene. Like "Boy, Who Destroyed Destroy the World" is on a Tony Hawk soundtrack, and it deserves to be. It's a skate punk song, um, but uh, but I never really knew. Like I, I, it wasn't even that. Like I tried to get into ska and failed. I just I didn't have any friends that yeah. went into it. That wasn't my world, and I just missed it. Yeah, that was, it was just, that's what
1: a couple of my friends are a couple years older than me, and that's what was going on. Like, you went to the ska show at the Grange or at the VFW. That's just what we did, and it's just how I got into it. But now, I guess, to wrap it up, Charlie, I guess, to wrap up this portion of the, uh, of the segment, I just want to know, like, all right, so you listened to this, and you did find some musically, uh, like, some musically redeeming qualities in an album that you hadn't heard before, a genre that you're not super into— do you think you're going to like go back and listen
0: to some of their other stuff?: Well, you were saying that their first album is like their best.: Yeah,
1: one. Everything goes numb is awesome, and then Keysby Nights, which is a re-release of the main
0: guy's first band, uh, their big album, those two are great albums. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I would probably check out the first one if that's, like, their best. Um, And then did they do, like, anything after this? Or was this kind of, like, the high point of of that? Yeah,
1: this was kind of it. They put out this album of covers called 99 Songs of a Revolution. And it was going to be, we're going to do nine of these, 11 on each, 11 on each. And it's going to be this awesome series we do over several years. Yeah, they never made it past Volume 1. Uh, They have a few more recent, like, and when I say recent, like maybe
0: 2013 uh, era albums, but I honestly never even heard them all the way through. Okay, so th- this was probably, like, their, if you're talking, like, creative high point, yeah. this, this was probably it, either this or the first one. Yeah, I'd probably go back and, and check out the first one. Like, as I said, and, and I don't want to, I, I, I want to emphasize this, like, I really, really liked We Will Fall Together. Okay. Like, I that that song, like, I didn't think I would, like, really love a ska song. That song owns. Like, that song just straight up owns. I think I, I think I tweeted out a couple weeks ago that, like, there's no such thing as, like, a bad, like, if you put saxophone in a song, it automatically is cool. And like I don't care if it's like oh it's uncool no it's awesome and the they they don't just have one saxophone I think I think they have two they have like two saxophone solos going on at the same time and then it goes straight into a, a bass solo and that's just like shit like number one these guys are good and then number two like that just sounds cool
1: yeah I I, it's, I love that it just sounds so big like it sounds yeah. like it like a, 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 even a little band with a saxophone sounds like they could fill an arena with the noise. Like, I, yeah. I just, I love that sound so much. Something I love about Ezra Furman,
0: how he used to use the saxophone a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, We I remember you were super into that album. I, I liked it to a degree. Um, the only song I loved, shit, what the hell was it called? Um, oh, God, it was one of the early songs of the album. But is he still, is he still making new stuff? Yeah, over? yeah. Yeah, I have cool. I
1: have a couple of newer Ezra albums, but yeah, that's man, Charlie. I gotta say, I really uh, I dug this, and Kelly knows so much more about music than me. <laughs> that like, <laughs> I feel like you guys are gonna kill the music. Uh, like when you guys team up for one of these,
0: you're gonna kill the music. Well, we just have to keep. Uh, I mean, I, I honestly, I had a really good time talking Scott because, again, like I love nothing more than learning about stuff I don't know, and I know l- very little about Ska, But we'll just have to make sure we always pick a bad movie who's, uh, to to, le- to lead off our, our episodes.
1: Yeah, who's uh, who's picking the movie? You were you were Kelly for next week.
0: Uh, not sure. I'll have to ask Kelly. Uh, but next time me and you go, you definitely pick the movie. All right, awesome. Sounds good, Charlie. All right, well, uh, I think that about does it. Hopefully, you like this uh, this brand new show. We're gonna try to make this a weekly thing. Uh, next week, I will be bringing Kelly on, but the week after that, Bill will be back to talk some more. What, what was the the name of the show you came up with? Other shit. Uh, other shit with Charlie. <laughs> okay, I, you know what? Let's go with that as a title. I like it. New other music. shit with you. When you start doing this for the Athletic,
1: you can call it New Music and Movie Discovery.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not a snappy title. No. Other shit is way better, so let's go with other shit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, Bill will be back in a couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll just keep his going for as long as we don't have hockey. Uh,
1: well, hopefully uh, that's not too much longer, but here we are, and <laughs> I'll keep doing it. it very as well, my Chuck.